Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. Thanks for listening. I wrote a letter to the English newspaper here in Israel called the Jerusalem Post. I don't know if they're going to publish it or not, but I want to share with the listeners what I wrote in that letter because I think I have something to say. The letter goes like this. The events of 7 October mark a sea change in world history. It is on a par with the Chamberlain-Hitler Agreement of 1938 and the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941. Nothing will ever be the same, not for the world, and particularly not for Jewish people and for Israel. There are a number of features of this new situation that have come into focus, some of which were dominant but have now become manifest, and while others are entirely new. By the way, correct what I just said, not that some were dominant, some some were dormant, but now they've come and manifest what others entirely knew. The world today is primarily divided into two opposing camps. One is Judeo-Christian society of the West, which is represented primarily by the United States and Israel. Western Europe, once the prime representative of this camp, has been weakened by a huge influx of Muslims over the last 50 years. The opposing camp is composed of two parts. One is the atheistic part, represented by Russia and China, and the other is the radical Muslim part, represented by Iran. Although Russia still has a large Christian population, and China may have a large Buddhist population, these nations are now in the hands of atheists and non-believers. Iran, which was once a moderate Islamic state, is now in the hands of radical Islam. They took over about 40 years ago. The only thing these two camps have in common is their active and militant opposition to Western society, represented in the main by the United States and Israel. The future of the world will be determined by the struggle between these camps. The United States is the primary leader of the Judeo-Christian camp, and Israel is in the front line of its defense. That is why it is imperative for the United States to support Israel. This is not a struggle between nations. It is a struggle between societies and civilizations upon which the future of the world depends. 
The massive and violent demonstrations in support of Palestinian terrorism in American cities, particularly on the campuses of universities, with the active and passive support of members of faculty and administration, are proof of a theory advanced by an early 20th century Italian anarchist named Antonio Gramsci. He theorized that governments are not overthrown nor societies changed by active revolution, but rather by slow and constant takeover of the educational institutions. This does not bode well for the United States as the leader of Western society, nor for the Jews of the United States, particularly college students, who openly expressed their fear of physical violence. Incidentally, it should be noted, as pointed out in the uh, editorial recently in the Jerusalem Post, the leaders of several foundations, foundation foundations, uh, financial foundations, have withdrawn their support for academic institutions that tolerate anti-Semitic activity, like Columbia, like Harvard, like Penn. In addition to demonstrations in American cities, there have been massive outpouring of support for Palestinian terrorism in Paris and in Brussels, Belgium. Tolerance of Jews by European society fostered by guilt feelings after the Holocaust have diminished over time and now are offset by the massive influx of Muslims, as I noted above. As for Israel, until 7 October, there was deeply divided society with demonstrations for and against the government occurring on a weekly and almost daily basis, with even heroic military veterans taking the radical step of vowing not to serve. As of 7 October, this is past history, and the country is united. It has never been since its founding in 1948. A further positive aspect of this change is the participation of ultra-Orthodox Haredi society as this joint, in this joint effort. Although Haredi society has an outstanding and admirable history of being active in organizations involved in helping society at the civil level, it did not consider military service as part of its obligation to society. <coughs> this has changed overnight and now there is a now a high rate of Haredi mobilization. This means that Haredim are not only participating physically in the defense of the country, but it will eliminate the tensions between Haredi and non-Haredi society that has been growing because of their non-participation. This is a further step in the strengthening of Israeli society. And finally, since 7 October, 
it has been obvious that there must be a change in the electoral system. The government, which should have predicted and prevented this tragedy, is with a few rare exceptions composed of faceless petty, faceless petty politicians who are beholden only to the party leadership to have their names placed on a list for elections. The people deserve better. The country should be divided into local electoral districts so that those who are elected should, know, should be known and be answerable to those who elected them. This is how real democracies work, and this could be one of the positive outcomes of this tragedy. <coughs> now, as I said previously, I wrote this uh, uh, in a letter to the Jerusalem Post, which, the, which is the primarily uh, English language uh, newspaper. It's read by uh, not only Israelis, but it's read also by uh, uh, people from uh, foreign countries and so forth. So I sent this in, and hopefully it will uh, get published. But in the meantime, I wanted the listeners to share the, with me the thoughts that I had about the result, what's resulted from the attack on Israel on August 6th. Now I want to say a couple of other things about the situation here. The relationship of other countries to what's happening right now here in Israel. Any reticence to condemn Hamas amounts to, co to collusion against Israel. Hesitancy to express explicit support for Israel at this time, which, or, or, which also means backing Israel in the many months ahead of fighting to crush Hamas, is tantamount to siding with the enemy. This has become obvious uh, in the American Congress, even though both the Republican and uh, Democratic parties are overwhelmingly supportive of Israel. There's this small group of um, Democrats who are anti-Israel, pro-Palestinian, and in a sense, they're also anti-American. The, uh, there's always sympathy for victims of conflict, but uh, the, the, that, that is a moral failure and you can't talk about that. During the Second World War, people in the United States and Britain had no sympathy for the people living in Germany and uh, Japan. It was a war. There's no time for, the, uh, for sympathy. Truth of the matter is, the Palestinians are, after all, victims of their own horrible leadership. But they chose it. This is a time for friends of Israel around the world to speak up loudly in support of Israel. Now, there's a call also heard around the world for a ceasefire. It makes no sense. A ceasefire now would be a victory for the Islamic attackers and a defeat for Israel. The, uh, the call for a, an immediate ceasefire is in fact meant to neutralize Israel and weakened against the next attacks that will come from Hamas, Hezbollah, and all these other proxies 
of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Now it's interesting that people, some people say that Hamas does not represent Palestinians in Gaza. Even Joe Biden has said this. But the truth of the matter is they voted in Hamas by over 70%. And they, they would, these people uh, in, who control Gaza, Hamas, uh, they were elected there and have been able to draft tens of thousands of Gazans into its military. Gaza's civilian population abetted Hamas in plotting against Israel, and they, thousands of ordinary Palestinians carried out the worst atrocities on October 7th massacre. Tens of thousands have participated in riots on border fences going back years. There are no uninvolved. The uninvolved mothers are proud to send their children and battle them to turn them into martyrs, what they call shahids. And so-called uninvolved teachers teach the children of Gaza that it's a religious obligation to kill Jews. These uninvolved have helped Hamas to hide its rocket launchers and other weapons. That does not mean, of course, that Israel should target every Palestinian household in Gaza, not at all. It does, it does mean, however, that the sentiments meant, meant to, uh, to make a lot of nasty Palestinians look good simply isn't true. Now, there's no doubt that Hamas is guilty of war crimes. They must be held accountable for war crimes. Its barbaric attack on Israeli towns is a war crime. Its use of civilians in Gaza as human shields uh, is a war crime. And its efforts uh, to uh, stop the uh, evacuation of those trying to get out of Gaza to go to Egypt is a war crime. So they are guilty of war crimes on several levels. So... Uh, you can add several additional war-related offenses like inflating and manipulating casualty counts, stealing relief supplies, and so forth. <clears throat> now, there are those who are suggesting to bring the Palestinian Party back as the ruler of Gaza. They were kicked out of there in 2005 by, uh, by Hamas, and they, they are the so-called rulers in the West Bank. No, however, the Palestinian Authority is weak, corrupt, and is not legitimate among the Palestinians themselves. So, and the truth of the matter is that the people of the Palestinian Authority are also no less hostile to Israel than the Hamas is. So, don't delude yourself into thinking the Palestinian Authority is the solution. There is no two-state solution anymore. Now, on top of all this, there is Iran. Washington is reluctant to call out Iran for what is being supportive of what's happening. President Obama had a, a delusion for uh, about Iran, 
And that delusion runs in the Biden administration also. The few in the American administration today understand the absolute need to cut Iran's regional down heft down to size. Uh, also, is another country involved, Qatar. It's a small, rich emirate in the Gulf, and it has a history of playing both sides in conflicts and getting away with it. Uh, but that, they should be watched carefully. There should be an American ultimatum to Qatar, which are given two hours warning to expel Hamas leadership, which is living in Qatar, and they also have troops from the U.S. Air Base in Qatar. So the, the Qatar is playing both sides of the both sides of the of the situation. Now, uh, the um, let's say a word about humanitarian refuge and relief. Re- relief for Gaza and Palestinians is a problem of Israel, not the world. Uh, Egypt, for example, has sealed its border with with Gaza, to hundreds of thousands of civilians seeking to get out because the Egyptian president doesn't want to hurt the cause of Palestinian statehood. In other words, he's denying Palestinian asylum seekers for geopolitical means. So, and another subject is Israel cannot allow Hamas to continue getting supplies of fuel or electricity during the war. A blockade of Gaza is needed and justified. Limiting the flow of funds and electricity to Gaza is meant to impair the enemy's military capabilities. This is legal warfare. This is not collective punishment of the civilian population. The United States and Britain didn't allow aid to go to the civilian population of Germany during the war, and rightfully so. So, by the way, the non-supply of fuel and electricity to the enemy is not only ethical, it's justified under international law. The, uh, by the way, international law requires Israel uh, to allow the passage of food medicine to civilians by third parties if such goods can be really reliably delivered. Uh, but if Hamas is taking the, the the stuff for themselves, Israel has no need to deliver it. Now, the final question is, is who will rule Gaza once Hamas is annihilated? What's the end game? Nobody knows. This is going to be a long war. Who knows how the war will develop, where it will lead? And the matter is the world's problem, not just Israel's because resolution is tied to broader regional battles. So Israel does not have to answer what's going to happen when it's over. Our main focus has to be on victory and destruction of Hamas. So we have a victory strategy. We have to stick to it. That's all Israel has to be involved in right now. What comes afterward can wait until afterward. I'll be back after the break. Hi, I'm Rabbi David Aaron. The soul basics are the most profound, the 
most essential and yet often the most neglected in our education. Join me for Soul Talk on Israel's News Talk Radio and discover the secrets to love, spiritual growth, and personal power. You're back with Jay Shapiro. The news is happening fast and furious this week. Uh, I uh, listened to the news from the United States, and uh, I'm uh, recording this part of the program on Tuesday afternoon, and uh, I see that there are people uh, disturbing hearings in Congress in the United States, <clears throat> people shouting in favor of the terrorists, and they're being taken out by the Capitol Police. Uh, this is the kind of thing you never heard about before. And so that's one thing that's happening there. At the same time this week, there were huge demonstrations uh, in New York and uh, about 10 or 12 different American cities, tens of thousands of people supporting um, the uh, terrorists in the big cities, particularly on the East Coast of the United States. And uh, support of uh, terrorists in the, by huge mobs in various uh universities in the United States, it's gotten so bad that uh, Jewish students are actually fearful for their lives. There's some, nothing like this happened uh, since the Nazi Germany, actually. So the United States is in deep trouble. It's interesting for, it's interesting, um, before there was precise instrumentation, to measure toxic fumes in coal mines, canaries would be used because they were more sensitive to toxic fumes from uh, uh, that would happen in the that occur in the coal mines than human beings were sensitive to. So what would happen was <coughs> the coal miners, uh, because they didn't have instrumentation, they would carry. Uh, Canaries at the Winton coal mine, and when the canaries got canaries got sick, they, uh, the manor, the uh, miners knew that they had to get out. Now, the truth of the matter is, and I, I, I wrote about this maybe 20 years ago, but it's even more true today, especially when you look at what's happening in the major cities and the campuses in the United States. The canary in the coal mine of Western society is the Jew. When the Jew is endangered, so is the entire society. Mass anti-Jewish riots disguised actually as anti-Israel, but they're anti-Jewish. Uh, they're often accompanied by physical violence and they've occurred in a number of major American and European cities and on university campuses. In New York, home of the largest Jewish population outside of Israel, Grand Central was closed by thousands who poured out of this train station 
or to busy 42nd Street to protest and in some cases to attack Jews. Hundreds were arrested by the police. Tens of thousands of pro-Palestinian and anti-Jewish marchers crossed the Brooklyn Bridge. And, and uh, these pro-Palestinian mobs were rioting in Brooklyn. Interesting, New York City has the largest Jewish population outside of Israel. Anyhow, <clears throat> hundreds of people were arrested by the police. And Jewish students at prestigious colleges like Penn, which is my alma mater, Harvard, New York University, and numerous, numerous other uh, institutes of higher learning have had to seek police protection from pro-Palestinian rioters. As a matter of fact, a number of Jewish benefactors of these institutions had ended their support, their funding, because the school administrations have done nothing to stop the violence. The governor of New York uh, went to Cornell University to speak about the anti-Semitism taking place there. Now, the truth of the matter is, you really think about this, you don't have to be a, a big uh, expert in history. These things are inconceivable only a few years ago. In particular, the anti-Israel activity on campuses, some supported by a not inconsiderable number of faculty members, has long-term implications. I think that what's happening on the campuses is worse than what's happening on the streets. And I'll tell you why. There was an early 19th century Italian anarchist by the name of Antonia Gramsci, G-R-A-M-S-C-I. I may have mentioned this uh, previously on my program, but it's important. Uh, he theorized that a society is not overthrown by revolution, but rather by slow but constant takeover of the educational system. America is the primary defender of Western society. It's been that way since World War II. The Western world, which is Judeo-Christian society, is defended primarily in the front, in the uh, in the front lines is, is Israel, and of course the United States, and the United States has moved major naval. Uh, forces uh, near into the Middle East. And as I said, the America, which is the primary defender of Western society since World War II, is in trouble. And the attacks on the Jews in America is a sign that the danger is imminent. And so attacks upon Jews in the United States is a very, very bad thing for the Western world. 
And I said something before, but I want to repeat it because I think it's really important. By the way, it's interesting. Uh, when I uh, do this program, I try to do uh, uh, one part each day, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So when I send in my program on Thursday, I've done all four parts. Uh, but things are happening in a really fast and furious. And I don't recall if I said it before. If I did, I apologize for repeating myself. But I want to emphasize something. That what happened on the 7th of October here in Israel marks a sea change in world history. It is on a par with the Chamberlain-Hitler Agreement of 1938 and a Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941 because nothing will ever be the same, not for the world and particularly not for the Jewish people everywhere and not for Israel. It's interesting, by the way, how Israel, up until the, that date, 7th of October, Israel uh, here, it was, it was tremendous political struggle here in Israel. There were army officers who were opposed to the changes that the government is trying to make, and they said they would not serve in, for, in, for, uh, in the service. If they were called up for reserve duty, they wouldn't serve. All that has changed as of the 7th of October. The uh, response to the situation has been more than 100%. The, the Army, the Air Force, the Navy, the, not only are um, reservists coming in who aren't even called, but people are volunteering, and uh, they don't even have enough food because the place is being overwhelmed with personnel. So people all over Israel are raising food, and they're helping other supplies, uh, like uh, jackets, um, shoes even. And uh, oddly enough, you know, there is a religious garment called the Arba Kanfot. It's something that the men wear under their clothing as a rule, that has fringes. Uh, it's a religious garment, uh, and the it's known. A lot of people know know it as a talit katan, a small talit. A talit is the big prayer shawl that's worn during services by uh, men, and the, the small uh, talit katan that they wear under their clothing every day. And there are volunteers in Israel, women making these talitot katan for the, for the soldiers because even soldiers who claim they're not religious are wearing them now. This has brought about a super change in Israel. This is never going to be the same. No tears about it. But they, there's a tremendous number of features of this new situation and it's absolutely mind-boggling. Nobody could have predicted this before the 7th of October. And in the, in the in large, in the, on the magna scale, the world today is shown 
to be primarily divided into two opposing camps. There's no two ways about it. One is the Judeo-Christian society. That's the society of the West. It's represented by the United States and Israel. Western Europe once was the prime representative of Judeo-Christian society, but it's been weakened by the large influx of Muslims over the last half century. This influx of Muslims primarily to Europe has weakened Western society, and incidentally, this unlimited unguarded immigration into the United States through its southern border may cause the same thing to happen in the United States. These things are not unrelated. I saw in the news today that there's hundreds of thousands of illegal immigrants have entered the United States and cities like New York they don't even have room where they can put these people. They're using beds in hotels. And that, that terrible things that are happening with the uh, illicit, illegal immigration to the United States really is not just a question of people coming to the United States. It's a question of the kind of people coming into the United States. And where do these people come from? Who are these people? What's going to happen to the United States in the course of the next 10 or 20 years with all these illegal immigrants from countries that do not have the values of the United States, which means they do not have Judeo-Christian attitudes. It's going to affect the United States. It's going to affect the free world. And it's a really serious problem. Now, as I said, there are two opposing camps. One is the Judeo-Christian camp, and the, uh, the other is the atheistic part, which is represented, uh, there's another part of that camp, it's the radical Muslim part, represented by Iran. Although Russia still has a large Christian population, and China may have a large Buddhist population, these nations are now in the hands of atheists and non-believers. They're the ones who set the policies. Iran was once a moderate Islamic state. It was an ally of Israel. I had friends here in Israel who worked and did business in Iran. All this changed after the revolution uh, 40-some years ago. Iran is now in the hands of radical Islam. The only thing that these two camps have in common, the atheistic part and the, uh, and the uh, radical Islam part, the only thing they have in common is their active and militant opposition to Western society represented in the main by the United States and Israel. 
There is no doubt, in my mind at least, and I'm not a big expert, the future of the world will be determined by the struggle between these two camps. I may have mentioned this previously, but I emphasize it even more as I watch the news from the United States today. The United States is the leader of the Judeo-Christian camp, and Israel is in the front line of its defense. That is why it is so important for the United States to support Israel. That's why, for example, the Congress, under its new leadership, is pushing for support of Israel. The administration in the United States put in a bill, a huge financial bill, to, for three things. Support Israel, support Ukraine, and protect America's southern border. And the Republican leadership in the House of Representatives under its new speaker, want to separate these bills and push forward first the support for Israel. The Democrats, by the way, are opposed to this. The Republicans are more realistic. They know that Israel, Israel's fight is the fight of Western civilization. So it's an imperative that the United States support Israel. It is not a struggle between nations. It is a struggle between societies, and it is a struggle between civilizations. And the future of the world depends on the, this struggle. The massive and often violent demonstrations in support of Palestinian terrorism in American cities and particularly on the campuses of universities with the active and passive support of members of faculty and administration are proof of a theory advanced by a 20th century Italian anarchist who I mentioned before. And I repeat that because I don't want to bore the listeners, but this is really important. It is he theorized the governments are not overthrown nor societies changed by active revolution, but only by constant takeover of the institutions of education. This does not bode well for the United States, as I mentioned before. This doesn't bode well for the United States nor for the Jews of the United States particularly college students who openly express their fear of physical violence. I've seen them being uh, interviewed. Students in Cornell, for example, were uh, interviewed just today. They're afraid to come out of their dormitories. We're talking about an Ivy League college. Incidentally, um, the, uh, the leaders of several Jewish institute foundations have withdrawn their support, and that makes sense. They, they realize what's happening. In addition to these demonstrations in American cities and on American campuses, there have been massive 
outpourings of support for Palestinian terrorism in Paris, in Brussels, in London. Tolerance of Jews by European society, forced in primarily by guilt feelings after the Holocaust, these feelings of guilt have diminished over time, and it's now offset by the massive influx of Muslims. Now, again, I hate to repeat myself, but these things are really important. I want to impress upon the listeners. The until 7th October, Israel was a deeply divided society. Primarily, there were demonstrations for and against the government on a weekly and daily basis. Um, and uh, heroic military veterans were taking the radical, radical step of vowing not to serve. I live not far from uh, the home of the President of Israel, and not, not far from the Knesset, Israel's parliament, where many times, particularly on Saturday nights, when I couldn't come home and to park my car because the streets were filled with demonstrators against changes in, in policy of the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, and I had to prove to the police where I live before I could come home and park. As of the 7th October, this is past history. This country is united and has never been since its founding in 1948. Now, another further and very positive aspect of this change is the participation of ultra-Orthodox society in this joint effort. Although this society, which are called Haredi in Hebrew, H-A-R-E-D-I, although Haredi society has an outstanding and admirable history of being active in the organizations involved in helping society at the civil and social level, the Haredi society did not consider military service as part of its obligation to society. This has changed overnight, and there is now a large and high rate of Haredi mobilization. This means that Haredi people are not only participating physically in the defense of the country, but will eliminate the tensions between Haredi and non-Haredi society that's been growing because they are non-participation. So this is a further step in the strengthening of Israeli society. And again, I hope I'm not repeating myself, but this is really important. And this is something that's uh, perhaps difficult for the uh, listeners uh, outside the country. Uh, another point, there has to be a change in the electoral system here in Israel. The In Israel, you cannot vote for a local representative and you have to vote for a party list. And the party list is made up by the leaders of the party. In other words, each party leadership chooses the names and the order of people on the party list. There are 120 seats in the Knesset. 
So the bigger parties uh, choose the membership uh, for, for they, they choose 120 names in order. The smaller parties know that they're not going to get uh, a large membership in the Knesset, so they choose may, up to maybe 50 names on their list. So when you vote for a party, uh, the list uh, gets its percentage into the Knesset. For example, if a party got uh, 50% of the vote, 50% of its list goes into Knesset. And you get you get half that list, even though you yourself, the voter, don't even know who's, can't even name who's on that list. So what's happened now is the government, which should have predicted and prevented this tragedy, with few rare exceptions, composed of faceless, petty politicians who are beholden only to the party leadership to have their names placed on the list for election. The people of Israel have shown they deserve better. The country should be divided into local electoral districts, though those who are elected should know and be answerable to those who elected them. That is how real democracies work, and this could be one of the positive outcomes of this tragedy. So as I said before, nothing will ever be the same after the 7th of October. It will not be the same in Israel. It will not be the same in the Western world. And things have changed, and we have to be aware of this. Again, I apologize to the listeners if I repeat myself, but I want to emphasize how important this moment is for our future. I'll be back after the break. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. Uh, what I like to do in this portion of the program is touch upon a bunch of things that are under the headlines that have to do with the war here, uh, things that don't uh, get uh, a lot of coverage, but they're, uh, they're not side issues. They're really part of the overall effort here. Uh, in Israel. First of all, the, there's something called the B'nai Menashe Jews. They are Jews from India, and uh, it's a small community, and uh, for many years they've been struggling to be recognized as being part of the Jewish people. Now, the, and it turns out that more than 200 Indian Jews 
were members of the B'nai Menashe community they have made Aliyah since the war began on October 7th. They've come in the last month, and they were called up for either reserve or active combat duty. The, the organization that helped bring these people here is called the Shavei Israel. Uh, it's a nonprofit, and uh, 75% of the recent immigrants from India, in India from India, have enlisted in combat units. 140 were called up for reserve service across Israel. Now, the Shavei Israel is a nonprofit organization founded by Michael Fraun, who is an American Olem, and the, the, the idea of the organization is to strengthen the ties between diaspora communities around the world and the state of Israel. And they have been lobbying for the mass immigration of the B'nai Menashe community from India. The community claims it's descended from one of the lost tribes of Israel, and the, for, for about 20 years now, this organization, Shavei Israel, has been lobbying for them to be recognized. So, all, according to the Shavei Israel, 99% of all men of military age who immigrated from India joined our, the war now, while 90% of the women enrolled in national service. And... Uh, that, that's really something, and something is really under the headlines. The next item has to do with the fact that a legal force has been organized to fight anti-Semitism. A coalition over 600 lawyers and law firms has for, formed what they call a legal war room, to confront the escalating wave of anti-Semitism. What they're trying to do is come up with strategic legal responses. Now, the executive director of the group said that at a time when anti-Semitism is on the rise, our collective action is more crucial than ever. We stand ready to deliver justice and to ensure that Jewish individuals have the robust legal defense that they deserve. Now, this initiative, by the way, came as a response to a series of violent incidents uh, all around the world, particularly in the United States and Europe, that are targeting the Jewish community, and this is particularly happening on college campuses in the United States. So this legal war room is an answer to this terrible, alarming increase in anti-Semitism. And what they're trying to do is to give immediate legal support to those in need. In other words, if someone is attacked uh, for uh, in an anti-Semitic attack, they can turn to this legal war room It'll immediately take up their case. It means going to court or what have you. I want to go on to another subject, also having to do with this war. 
the it's interesting what's happened now and uh, the uh, a lot of people donate organs and uh, what happened now is that an IDF sergeant 33 year old and uh, and uh, he, he's well known to the Israel National Transplant Center he's married in the father of son he donated a kidney last June to a person he didn't know and so he wanted he wanted to donate a kidney before that but the reason he didn't so because if you donate a kidney it lowers your military profile and prevents someone from being called into reserves you know when you before you join the Israeli army before you're inducted into the the Israeli army you take a physical and everything that is wrong with you uh, is worth the number of points and they reduce it from the number of 100. In other words, I, for example, I wear glasses. And uh, so that's worth a, num a, a number of points and they lower it from the top number that you can get. And in other words, in, in the final analysis, you have to have a, a be higher than the number, I think it's 82, in order to be a combat soldier. And uh, so that what they do is when you go and you take a physical, every single thing is worth points. And if you have a problem in that, uh, in that particular area of your body, or you say your, your, your hearing, your eyesight, or what have you, it reduces numbers from your total profile. And if your profile is under 82, you can no longer be a combat soldier. So uh, this particular fellow's name was um, Naran Eshar, and he was mortally injured when his tank overturned. And uh, what happened was uh, he, he fought for his life at the medical center, but he was declared lower brain dead. And... Um, they, his family didn't know what to do. You know, it's a major problem. Somebody's brain dead. question is whether you can allow him to die. And so the family had to consult with rabbis and so so forth. Then when they realized that it was lower brain death, the, uh, so he essentially it was considered dead. And what happened last week, Five of his organs were transplanted, saving four lives. A heart went to a 59-year-old man at the Sheba Medical Center, two lungs to a 72-year-old man in the Sheba Center, his liver went to a 67-year-old man at the Tel Aviv Sarasky Medical Center, and a kidney to a 43-year-old man also at Saraski. In other words, here's a guy who was killed, essentially, gave up part, parts of his body to help other people live. And that, that is absolutely a fantastic thing. It, it, it was in the newspaper in a little uh, column on like page 16, but I felt it was too important and to honor him I felt that the listeners should know about this. So five organs were donated from a reservist who was left brain dead after his tank overturned 
and he helped to save the lives of five people even after he was dead. That's fantastic. The next item has this, something to do with really also under the headlines. You know, there are a lot of Bedouins living in Israel, particularly in the Negev. And the most of the Bedouins, I shouldn't say most, a large number of them work in Jewish communities. And uh, what happened was that when the, the raid came on, on October 7th, the, um, the terrorists attacked a lot of communities where Bedouin were working, Jewish communities, and a lot of the Bedouin who were working in these communities are now missing. So the, from that morning until now, there's been no communication with many Bedouins who worked in Israeli communities. And to lose a family is certainly hard. And everybody prays it to come back. In the meantime, these Bedouin, just like the Jews, are suffering from not knowing what happened to uh, their families. So uh, when, when Hamas attacked Israel, it didn't only attack Jews. They killed many people from the Arab sector. So far, 24 people from the Bedouin communities have been murdered by Hamas, and another seven are kidnapped and being held in Gaza. So for this reason, members of the various Bedouin communities in Israel have joined forces in an effort to get them affected. Because essentially, as one of their spokesmen said, our destiny is shared. So they put together a joint relief center for in Rahat, which is a Bedouin community, to work for the resilience of the state of Israel. They, they established a shared relief center in a Bedouin community operated by Jews and Arabs whose goal is to help these affected people. They get donations from Arabs and Jews, and they get volunteers who are both Arabs and Jews. And what happens is the volunteers arrive once a week at a relief center to collect all the donations they package all the equipment in little parcels and they distribute them to Jewish families in the Gaza envelope and to Arab families in Bedouin communities. So the, uh, <clears throat> obviously the war has created some tension between Jews and Arabs, but I think most of it is related to fear. The, uh, what they're trying to do, the Bedouins send a message of partnership. Uh, this this fear is quite understandable, but we have to arise above that, and it's important that we maintain a partnership with the Bedouin community that lives here in Israel. And a lot of Jews and Arabs live in the Negev. You don't see that in other parts of the country. So in a sense, they have a shared destiny. So... And the, uh, the leader of the Bedouin community made an interesting statement. He said, this is not a war between Jews and Arabs. It's a war between light and darkness, between people who want life and people who are terrorists. So uh, as the war continues, 
the uh, the Bedouin communities in the negative are in same danger because they're also targets of Hamas rockets, and most of them in the Bedouin community do not have bomb shelters. Altogether, the Bedouin community in the south of Israel is about a hundred thousand people. They're living without shelters, and that is the situation. So here we have the Bedouins, citizens of Israel. They're under the same attack as the Jews, and it's important for these communities to see themselves as part of Israel because we're in this struggle together against terror. So that's something, again, also under the headlines, but I think the listeners should know about it. By the way, a Bedouin family uh, from a place in the negative called Tel Sheva is offering $1 million for information who, uh, regarding the Hamas terrorists who killed their son during the mass infiltration on October 7th. The uh, interesting, the, the, when they killed 1,400 Israelis, women, children, infants, they also killed a lot of Bedouin. The uh, according to uh, the newspaper Mariv, the uh, the terrorist uh, uh, killed uh, this fellow Abu Asa, who's a Bedouin. He was working in a Jewish community. He was murdered, and the killers took a picture of murdering him, knowing, by the way, that he was an Arab, and they tortured him. They shot him to death. So the family posted an Arabic-language video to social media offering anyone who has information on the terrorists involved in his murder $1 million. They murdered him despite knowing he was a Bedouin. And his family said, we want to know who is responsible. They will have to pay the price. No, it's very interesting. These Bedouin, see that a member of their family was killed, and they look upon it, interestingly, as a personal thing. Personal in the sense, it's like to the Bedouin, if somebody comes in your tent and uh, and does mischief, you got to get back at him. So you, their son was killed in this terrorist attack. They are offering $1 million to find out who the the Arabs were who killed their son, and they will go get him themselves. A very interesting side effect of this war, because the the uh, obviously if somebody's lost in the war, it's a personal tragedy. But the Bedouin look upon it not just personal, but it's a family tragedy that must be avenged, and they're going to find out. Who they're willing to put out a million dollars to find out who killed them, and they're going to get him themselves. So that's something really under the headlines, but something rather interesting. I thought the uh, listeners would be interested in hearing that. Here's another odd item under the headlines. You know, air passengers on long flights, especially pregnant women or people with chronic diseases, they're advised to move around to avoid suffering from what's called PE, pulmonary embolism, which is usually caused by the breaking off of a blood clot in the veins of the leg. 
the cardiologist at Hadassah University Medical Center here in Jerusalem have reported the first documented case of a patient who suffered this PE, this uh, pulmonary embolism, brought on by sitting in a safe room in the city of State Road during constant missile attacks by Hamas terrorists. It's a, an interesting it, the phenomenon of this guy who is, I don't know if it's a man or a woman, they only, they only um, say the, the name of the patient's name is F. They only give his initial. This phenomenon is identical to that described in the medical literature regarding people who fly on long flights. So even in a safe room, it's important to get up and move around as much as possible. That's something... Um, and this F arrived at the hospital in life-threatening condition after sitting in a safe room for an extended period. He was 52 years old. He was flown by helicopter to the hospital in critical, unstable condition, and it caused severe damage to the right ventricle in his heart. Sitting in a safe room for hours upon hours, I guess is the equivalent of uh, sitting on an airplane for a long flight, and it can affect your body. The uh, so that that again, that's one of the side issues of the uh, president's situation. They uh, they 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 perform cardiac catheterization, inject drugs with catheter directly to the pulmonary, and all these kinds of treatments, which were successful. And they, they had the improvement of the patient's clinical condition, all because of sitting in a safe room to avoid being killed by terrorists. So they have a, a side effect of sitting in a safe room. Unbelievable. By the way, one final thing on this, under the headline, the Hebrew University has announced the establishment of a dedicated fund aimed at providing support to its students whose lives have been impacted by the terrorist attack on October 7th. The, um, they've raised uh, 15 million Israeli shekels for this cause. It's a scholarship intended to provide assistance to students serving in reserve duty, students in the Gaza Strip affected by the attack, and students have been evacuated from the northern region. There are about 4,000 male and female students who have been called up to serve the army, and the university is, says they'll do everything in their power to ensure our students integrate well in the upcoming school year. So, uh, interesting. By the way, uh, I have a, a granddaughter who's a student at Hebrew University. She's a law student, and obviously school did not start in September. Uh, it uh, was scheduled to start in, in uh, October. School is not starting. Now they say school will be starting in uh, in uh, late November. I I really question whether that's going to happen or not because we're still, you know, there's a good possibility we'll be at the height of this war. So what I tried to do in this segment of the program is touch upon uh, a number of things that are under the headlines. They are related to the war, and they show how it's affecting all kinds of things that you wouldn't have thought of off the top of your head. 
I'll be back after the break. Warning. Take cover. The Jewish Truth Bomb is here. The show that will explode all the false narratives and fake news. Join host Lenny Goldberg each week as he wires the news together and detonates it through biblical verses that will deliver a shockwave that will blow you away. Don't miss it. The Jewish Truth Bomb. Every Monday. Just 100 years ago, Zeb Jabotinsky wrote an article called The Iron Wall. And I would like to read to the listeners excerpts from that article, which is just, are just as applicable today as they were then. He wrote the following. But the question of whether or not it is always possible to achieve peace through peaceful means comes under a different light. To answer this question depends absolutely on the attitude of the Arabs to us and toward Zionism and not our attitude toward the Arabs. After this, I will now get to the point. The Arabs of the land of Israel should willingly come to agreement with us is beyond all hopes and dreams at present and in the foreseeable future. This inner conviction of mine I express so categorically, not because of any wish to dismay the moderate faction in the Zionist camp, but on the contrary, because I wish to save them from any such dismay. Apart from those who have been virtually blind since childhood, all the other moderate Zionists have long since understood that there is not even the slightest hope of ever obtaining the agreement of the Arabs of the land of Israel to becoming a country with a Jewish majority. The inhabitants no matter whether they are civilized or savages, have always put up stubborn fight. Furthermore, how the settler acted or behaved has no effect whatsoever. The Spaniards who conquered Mexico and Peru or our own ancestors in the days of Joshua ben Nun behaved once they like plunderers, but those great explorers, the English, the Scots, and the Dutch, who were the very first real pioneers of North America, were people possessed of a very high ethical standard, people who not only wished to leave the redskins at peace, but could also pity a fly, people who in all sincerity and innocence believed that those virgin forests and vast plains, ample space was available for both the white and the red man, but the native resisted both barbarian and civilized settlers with the same degree of cruelty. Another point which had no effect at all was whether or not there existed a suspicion that the settler wished to remove the inhabitants from his lands. The vast areas of the United States never contain more than one or two million Indians. 
The inhabitants fought the white settlers not out of fear, nor in the knowledge that they might be expropriated, but simply because there has never been an indigenous inhabitant anywhere or at any time who has ever accepted the settlement of others in his country. Every indigenous people, whether civilized or not, regard their country as their natural homeland where they want to live and constantly remain its sole owners. And such a people will not voluntarily admit to new owners or even to a partnership. This rule applies to the Arabs no less and in our peace proclamations, we try to convince ourselves that the Arabs are either fools easily deceived by a milder interpretation of our, our, our wishes, or a tribe of mercenary materialists ready to give up their rights to the land of Israel in exchange for cultural or economic advantages. I completely reject this evaluation of the Arab character. Their cultural standard is low, and do not, they do not possess our endurance and willpower. But as psychologists, they are just as sophisticated as we are, and for hundreds of years they, much like us, have been schooled in the art of polemics and sharpening of their wits. We can tell them as much as we want about our good intentions, but they understand no less than we what is no good for them. They cling to this land, the land of Israel, at least with the same instinctive love and primitive fanaticism displayed by the Aztecs in Mexico or the Sioux in their prairies. To think that the Arabs will voluntarily consent to the realization of a Zionism return for the culture and economic benefits we can bestow on him is infantile and has its source in a feeling of contempt, which Arab, Arab, Arabophiles have for the Arab people. The Arabs, according to these Arabophiles, are nothing more than a rabble of materialists prepared to barter away their patriotism for a developed network of railroads. This view is absolutely groundless. Individual Arabs may perhaps be bought off, but this hardly means that all the Arabs in Eretz Israel are willing to sell a patriotic fervor for what not even a Papuan will trade. Every indigenous people who resist alien settlers as long as they see any hope of ridding themselves of the danger of foreign settlement. This is how the Arabs behave and will go on behaving so long as they present a gleam of hope they can prevent Palestine from becoming the land of Israel. Some of us have imagined that a misunderstanding has occurred, but because the Arabs did not quite understand our intentions, they oppose. But if we were to make it clear to them how modest and limited were our aspirations, they would then stretch out their arms in peace. This too is a fallacy that has been proved time, time without end. And I need to quote on one early, three years ago, during a visit here, 
Sokolov delivered a great speech about this very misunderstanding, employing trenchant language to prove how grossly mistaken the, the Arabs were and uh, supposing that we intended to take their property or expel them from the country. This was definitely not so, nor did we even want a Jewish government. All we wanted was a government that would be representative of the League of Nations. A reply to this speech was published by an Arab newspaper called El Carmel and a leading article which, which, uh, whose content I keep here from memory, but I which I am sure is a faithful account. Our Zionist grandees are unnecessarily perturbed, writes the author. There's no understand, misunderstanding whatsoever. What Mr. Sokolov claims on behalf of Zionists is true, but the already the Arabs already know this without Mr. Sokolov. Obviously, the Zionists today cannot dream of expelling or suppressing the Arabs, or even set up a, setting up a Jewish government. Clearly, at this period, they were interested in only one thing that the Arabs should not interfere with Jewish immigration. Furthermore, the Zionists have pledged themselves to control immigration in accordance with the country's absorptive economic capacity. But here again, the Arabs have no illusions since no other conditions would prevent the possibility of immigration. The editor of the Arab paper is even willing to support the opinion that the absorptive capacity of Urchiso is very great, and possibilities, poss, poss, and possibilities exist for settling many, very many Jews in the country without affecting one single Arab. Just that is what the Zionists want, and precisely what the Arabs do not want. For in this way, the Jews will little by little become a majority, and ipso facto, a Jewish government will be formed so that the fate of the Arab minority will depend on the goodwill of the Jews. But was this was it not the Jews themselves who told us many times the pleasant um, pleasantness of being a minority? Therefore, no misunderstanding exists at all. The Zionists desire one thing only freedom of immigration, and it's just this Jewish immigration that we Arabs do not want. The logic and the mode of thinking employed by this Arab editor is so simple and clear that it should be learned by heart and be an essential part of our basic thinking on this Arab problem. It is no importance at all whether we quote the words of Herzl or Herbert Samuel just justifying our settlement activities. There is no gainsaying the meaning of settlement and what it implies is fully understood by every sensible Jew and Arab. There can only be one purpose in settlement. For the country's Arabs, that purpose is essentially unacceptable. This is a natural rea reaction and nothing will change it. The following is a plan that seems to have a powerful attraction to many Zionists. It goes like this. If it is po impossible to gain an endorsement of Zionism by the Arabs of the land of Israel, then it must be obtained from the Arabs of Syria, Iraq, Saudi, and perhaps also of Egypt. 
even if this were possible, would not bring about any change in the basic situation. It would not change the mentality of the Arabs in the land of Israel in relation to the Jews. Seventy years ago, unification of Italy was achieved at the cost of retention by Austria of Trent and Trieste. However, the inhabitants of those two Italian towns not only refused to accept the situation, but the contrary took up their struggle against Austria with redoubled vigor. If it is possible, and I'm doubt to convince the Arabs in Baghdad and Mecca that for them the land of Israel is no more than a small and unimportant frontier region, for the Arabs the land of Israel would not be so, but would remain their homeland the center and basis of their independent national existence. In such an event, we'd also have to conduct our settlement activities without the consent of the country's Arabs. That is to say, exactly those conditions of which they are at present being conducted. But an agreement with the Arabs outside of the land of Israel is also delusion. The Arab nationalists in Baghdad and Mecca and Damascus to agree, to agree such an expensive contribution, we would have to offer them something just as valuable. We can offer them only two things in exchange, either money or political assistance, or both. We cannot offer them neither. Where money is concerned, it is ludicrous to think that we can finance the development of Iraq or Syria. Well, we are not even sufficient for the land of Israel. Ten times more illusory is any idea of political assistance for the political aspiration of the Arabs. Arab nationalism has set itself the very same as those set by Italian nationalism before 1870 and Polish nationalism before 1918. Political unity and independence. These Arab aspirations mean the eradication of every traces of Britain influence in Egypt and Iraq, the expulsion of the Arabs, of the Italians from Tripolitania, the removal of French control from Syria, and most assuredly from Tunis and Morocco. For us, to support such a movement would be tantamount to suicide and treachery. If we disregard the fact that the Balfour Declaration was signed by Britain, you must never forget that France and Italy also signed it. We cannot participate in political intrigue for the purpose of remo re removing Britain from the Suez Canal and the Pers Persian Gulf and the total el elimination of French and Italian colonial rule over Arab territory. This is impossible, cannot be considered. And so we must conclude that we cannot promise anything either to the Arabs in the land of Israel or to the Arab countries. Their voluntary agreement is out of the question. Hence, those for whom an agreement with the Arabs is a prerequisite for Zionism can be sure that its condition will never be fulfilled and they should therefore renounce their Zionism. To continue settlement irrespective of Arab objections means having the protection of a power that does not depend on the local population. This is our policy on the Arab question. Now we must be saying it so, in, whether we admit it or not, 
What does the Balfour Declaration mean for us? What is the use of the mandate for us? It is a fact that a disinterested power took upon itself to commit to create an administrative and security condition that the local population would be deterred from any attempt to interfere with our efforts should they intend to do so. All of us, with no exception whatsoever, are constantly demanding that this power strictly fulfill its obligations. There is little difference between militarists and others. The only slight differences might be between is that the, someone an iron wall constructed with Jewish bayonets and others wanted to be constructed with British bayonets. Others supporting any kind of agreement or uh, uh, talking about other kind of bayonets. You all, all we want is an iron wall. With our own hands, we'll destroy our course who we proclaim the necessity, necessary for agreement with the Arabs. That These are the facts on the ground. I do not mean to assert that no agreement whatsoever is possible with the Arabs, but a voluntary agreement is just not possible. As long as the Arabs preserve a gleam of hope they will succeed in you know, getting rid of us, nothing in the world, soft words or alluring promises, can cause them to relinquish hope. They are, they are not a rabble. They are a living people, and a living people will be ready to on faithful issues, only they have given up hope of getting rid of all the alien settlers and closed every breach in the Iron Wall. Only then will the extremist groups of the, of the, with their slogan never lose their influence, and only then will they be influenced, be transferred to more moderate groups. Only then will the moder- will the moderates offer compromise. Only then will they begin bargaining with us on practical matters. I'm optimistically convinced they will intend they will indeed be granted satisfactory assurances that peoples like good neighbors can live in peace. The only way leading to such an agreement is by an erecting an iron wall, meaning that in the land of Israel there must be a power that will not under any circumstances yield to Arab pressure. In other words, the only way to achieve an agreement with them in the future is by absolutely avoiding any attempts at an agreement with them at the present. That was written by everything I said so far in this section of the program was written by an, an article of the Iron Wall by Zev Jabosinski a hundred years ago. I want to repeat that last statement. The only way to achieve an agreement with them in the future is by absolutely avoiding any attempt at agreement with them at present. That was written a hundred years ago. It is just as true today. And the events we are witnessing now are proof that this is true. So until next time, let's hope we hear good news. Jay Shapiro signing off and hoping and praying that this week will bring better news to the Jewish people than we've had at the beginning of this month. We are fighting a a war not only for our survival, but to convince our enemies that they cannot destroy us. That's what this is all about. 
It's not just for survival, but it's to show to the other side their efforts to destroy us will come to no avail. Till next time, let's only hope for good news. Jay Shapiro, signing off.